The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The wellness community recently joined forces with Gilda's Club to become the Cancer Support Community, the largest provider of cancer support in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Uh, on today's show, which is being brought to us by uh, Millennium, uh, Morphotech, and uh, Novartis Oncology, we're going to talk about a very common side effect from cancer treatment. Uh, it's often described as a mental cloudiness that patients notice before, uh, during, and, and uh, oftentimes after chemotherapy. It's called chemo brain, and we've got two experts here to help us understand how it might be triggered and what you can do to cope with it. But before we jump into our topic today, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. Only one in a hundred women with symptoms typical of ovarian cancer, such as persistent bloating or pelvic pain, actually has the disease, researchers recently reported. Several medical societies recommend the use of these and other symptoms to detect ovarian cancer early before it spreads, but the new study found no evidence that symptoms could speed up detection. As with all cancers, doctors are searching for ways to diagnose this cancer earlier. However, this study suggests that it's going to be hard to move the diagnosis of ovarian cancer forward. The study involved some 800 women who had been treated for ovarian cancer. Researchers asked these women about the symptoms they had before their diagnosis and then compared their answers to those of a controlled group of more than 1,300 women without cancer. About 60 to 70 percent of the cancer patients had experienced symptoms almost daily for more than a few weeks during the year leading up to their diagnosis. The symptoms were most frequent in patients diagnosed with late-stage cancers, and the majority of the women only began experiencing symptoms a few months before their diagnosis. However, they estimate that 100 women with symptoms would need to be evaluated to detect one with ovarian cancer. Among women without ovarian cancer, only 6% had persistent symptoms, but because the disease is rare, chances are that women with symptoms don't have it. In the United States, ovarian cancer kills more than 14,000 women every year, according to the American Cancer Society, and experts estimate that about 1 in 2,500 American women has the disease without being aware of it. Still, women are advised against routine screening because the tests frequently turn up false positives and have been shown to trigger a large number of unnecessary surgeries. The current study argues for a cautious approach to the use of symptom patterns to trigger extensive medical evaluation for ovarian cancer. While doctors agree that women with persistent symptoms should see a physician, they should be aware that it is unlikely to be ovarian cancer. 
I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. If you have cancer or know someone who has been treated with chemotherapy, you may have noticed some changes after treatment. Uh, it's a known fact that while chemotherapy attacks cancer cells, it also attacks healthy cells and, and can take a real physical toll on the body. Uh, but if you've ever experienced memory lapses, trouble concentrating, difficulty remembering common words, you may be experiencing what we call chemo brain. Today we're joined by two experts who are here to talk about this uh, side effect and what you can do to get out of the fog. Uh, I'm here with Idell Davidson, a cancer survivor and award-winning health medical and general interest journalist and co-author of Your Brain After Chemo, a practical guide to lifting the fog and getting back to your focus. Uh, thanks for being here, Idell. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. We're also joined by the book's other author, Dr. Dan Silverman, who is uh, the head of, head of the Neuronuclear Imaging Section in the Amundsen Biological Imaging Division, that's a mouthful, and uh, Associate Professor of Molecular and Medical Pharmacology at UCLA. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Kim. That's a, that's a mouthful, your title there, I've got to tell you. <laughs> We've got a lot to cover on today's show. Um, we're going to keep the conversation simple. Uh, so let's jump in. Idell, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Take us back to the day you were diagnosed with cancer. What was it like to hear those words, you have cancer? Yeah. Okay, well, the date was July 5th, 2005, so coming up on five years. And I think my reaction was not unlike anyone else's reaction who has ever experienced those words. And, you know, I think probably many people who are listening right now will tell you that it's kind of as if the ground gives way beneath your feet, and that's what it was like for me. In my case, my gynecologist felt a lump in my breast during a routine exam, mm -hmm. and she called with the biopsy results. And, you know, honestly, I... I can tell you, I don't really remember hearing the words, you have cancer. Mm. I think I stopped listening after hearing the words, I'm so sorry to tell you. Mm. And at least in the short term, until you're able to gather information and feel as if you have some control over what's happening to you or about to happen to you, it's, it's terrifying. And just, you know, not just for yourself, but for your family. And that's why it's so important to join uh, caring communities, you know, like the wellness community, like Gilda's Club, which mm -hmm. is what I did. I joined the wellness community West Los Angeles yeah. and um, was able to get the support I needed. Wonderful, wonderful. So, 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 take us through in a little bit more detail, uh, Idell, what your what the process was. So, what 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 stage uh, was your cancer? What was the, the you know what was the course of treatment um, that that you went through? Give us give, give us a little more of those details. Okay. Well, it was uh, stage two, um, and it was um, a, a small tumor, um, but it was I was HER2 positive. Mm -hmm. So because of that, um, I had to have, um, and because I had some lymph node involvement, I had to have uh, chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So I went through a lumpectomy and radiation and in between the chemotherapy, and I had six rounds of Caxotere and carboplatin, and then in addition to that, a year of Herceptin, which is that monoclonal antibody for the HER2-positive breast cancers. And can you uh, tell folks what that is, HER2-positive, I don't? Um, yeah. People with HER2-positive breast cancers overexpress a protein called HER2. Um, they have too many receptors on, on the cancer cell um, and um, that are HER2 new 
receptors, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. because they overexpress this protein, um, they're... And, we, and we've been able to develop a specific treatment for women who are HER2 positive? Oh, yes, um, Herceptin, yeah. and there are, there are others. There are many others now, thank goodness, but um, it's a targeted therapy, unlike chemotherapy that kind of blasts your whole body. Herceptin is, uh, works with your body to create antibodies um, to, to get rid of the cancer cells. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in terms of how the chemotherapy made me feel, um, I can tell you that about midway through treatment, I began to experience this kind of fog um, that truly was kind of relentless, and I couldn't think straight, um, I couldn't make decisions, I was disoriented, and there were these little things, like, um, just to give you a few examples, I, returning, yeah. I remember <laughs> returning home from chemo, and we had all these workers in the house. They were just doing some things that needed to be done, some repairs. And I took out the checkbook to pay them, and I didn't know. I was so disoriented. I didn't know what day or month or year to put on that dateline on the check. Mm. And then there were other things. I forgot my own phone number, and I forgot my sister's phone number. And I got terribly lost one day at the Century City Mall, which is near my home in Los Angeles, and... Um, that was a remarkable thing because I know this mall like the back of my hand. I'd been shopping there for years, and it was very familiar to me, and that was really very terrifying. A terrifying, a real emotional experience. Very, I, yes. And yeah. the worst for me of all was how this kind of brain fog affected my work as a writer and a reporter during that time. And now my editors tell me that they never noticed a thing. Mm. But I can tell you quite honestly, that I keenly noticed my loss of focus and how many more hours it took me to write cogently under deadline pressure. And I knew then that something was really very wrong. And were you consciously, Idel, trying to hide it so that no one else would notice? I mean, were you, did you, you know, did you have kind of strategies to, to do things or to interact with folks in a certain way so that they wouldn't pick up on that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, work-wise, especially, you know, with, with my editors, I, I really didn't tell too many people. And um, I just, yeah, I just worked hard. I tried to be more organized. Um, and, I, and I, you know, one of my personal philosophies is I, I don't really feel that it's necessary to tell people that you're having problems cognitively unless it's so disruptive to your work or um, to your home life. Yeah. But I didn't go around advertising it. I just tried to compensate the best way I knew how. That you could. That you could, yeah, yeah. Um, we also have with us today Dr. Dan Silverman from UCLA. Um, Dan Idell's given you know, kind of a, an amazing story. I mean, as a, an active working journalist, not only what she went through with her breast cancer experience with regard to surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and all of those pieces, but then also about this thing that we call uh, chemo brain. So, Dan, would you give us some context? Tell us what chemo brain is and, and how it affects cancer patients. Sure. Um, chemo brain, or as some people call it, chemo fog, or as, as we actually call it ourselves in the book, post chemo brain, um, refers to a syndrome of 
different kinds of symptoms that different people may experience somewhat differently, but the most common things that you see across people and across cancers and chemotherapies are uh, changes in ability to concentrate, um, changes in ability to multitask, be able to stay on a given task, changes in in memory, um, particularly short-term memory issues, and accompanying that, that's not explicitly chemo brain, but often makes all of that worse, is um, profound fatigue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, t- t- so, so, tell us a little bit more, Dan, about you know what, what do we know? What, what causes this? What do we what do we know about you know kind of some of the medical side of this? So, in terms of what causes, that's actually still a very active area because a lot of this has been uh, based on observation. Yes, you, know, you can't do an experiment where you just randomly you know say, okay, this half the people get chemotherapy, this half won't. Um, and so there's a lot of controversy about how much is due to a specific chemotherapy agent or a specific combination of chemotherapy agents, how much is due to the cancer itself, how much is due to other things that the people undergo, like radiation. Right. Um, but the, in terms of the, kind of the, the best ideas that are acknowledged out there, the chemotherapy, first of all, um, to, uh, is often said, well, it doesn't really get to the brain itself because of this blood-brain barrier. We know that that's not true for a lot of chemotherapy agents, even in healthy people, let alone in people who have cancer or who are getting exposed to a lot of toxic drugs, which could further break down um, the barrier between the blood and the brain. Right, right. Um, and then on top of that, there's a lot of things that are released on, in, on the blood side. For example, things that come out of our immune system cells or things that come out of cancer cells that themselves can more readily get across blood-brain barrier than some of the chemotherapy agents can, and yeah. that themselves can have toxic effects on brain tissue. Yeah, yeah. Um, we are, uh, we're just going to take a quick break here. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about chemo brain or, 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 or chemo fog. Um, and this is really a, a, a experience of memory lapses, trouble concentrating, difficulty remembering things um, during and, and, and I guess most commonly after uh, somebody has had um, chemotherapy. So we've got a lot to dive into on the show today with regard to chemo brain and these effects of chemotherapy. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. On today's show, we're talking about chemo brain, the mental cloudiness that up to about 70% of cancer patients experience from chemotherapy treatment. I'm here with Idell Davidson and Dr. Dan Silverman. They are co-authors of a book called Your Brain After Chemo, a practical guide to lifting the fog and getting back your focus. Uh, Idell, in addition to, to personally experiencing chemo brain, you, you've uh, done a lot of research uh, on the topic for your uh, for your book. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, we have that statistic up to 70% of patients experience this. Um, yes. How do we know that? How are patients talking about this issue? And, and, and I think an important question, how long does chemo brain typically last? Yeah. Well, at least among lymphoma or breast cancer survivors where there's the most data, up to about 80% really of people who go through chemo report some amount of cognitive dysfunction. And the good news is that most of us get better over time. With myself, my fog lifted about one year after treatment, which is the case for about half of that 80%. Mm-hmm. And um, three-quarters or so feel pretty much back to normal, cognitively speaking, within about two years. But there is another group that last quarter um, that seemed to remain impaired for years after they're physically well or stable. and. I know that Dan has done a lot of research in this area and, and probably can add to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Dan, tell us a little bit more. I know, I know you do have quite a bit of expertise in this area. I understand also that you're involved with a pretty large clinical trial in this space. So tell us about that. Who are you working with? Um, what do you hope to learn and, and, and determine from the research that you're doing? Sure. So actually I'm involved in a few different trials uh, related to the effects of cancer and uh, and chemotherapy on the brain, and one of the largest ones is something that's being sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, National Cancer Institute, and we're working um, with Patty Gantz, who's an oncologist, who's the principal investigator on this trial, uh, who specializes in breast cancer and also in effects on quality of life issues, and a big one of quality of life issue has been these changes in people's cognitive abilities, abilities you know, to think and concentrate and so forth. And in fact, the way that she originally got into this was that she was finding that now that people were getting diagnosed at earlier and earlier stages of breast cancer and being treated, they were being cured in many cases. And so they became these long-term survivors who mm-hmm. cancer per se wasn't really the issue. But the single biggest complaint that they were having about quality of life had been the changes that they had experienced in terms of their cognitive abilities mm-hmm. in addition to um, fatigue issues. And uh, she teamed up with um, uh, neuropsychologist Steve Castellone, uh, who had been studying patients by doing a batteries of neuropsychological tests, as people had at, at many other institutions who were looking at this and looking at how they were, after chemotherapy exposure, different from people who hadn't been exposed to chemotherapy. And then um, at, teamed up with me as someone who specializes in taking um, images of the brain and of brain function in particular. And back in uh, 2007, we published in uh, Breast Cancer Journal, Breast Cancer Research and Treatment, the first direct look at what was changing in terms of brain metabolism so that we were seeing um, changes that you could see in black and white or in, or in color as, as we displayed it um, in the brains of people who had been exposed to chemotherapy compared to the brains of people who hadn't been exposed to chemotherapy or in the brains of people who hadn't had cancer. Um, and 
the uh, impact of having that kind of just visually there um, was tremendous. We got all sorts of feedback from people around the country saying, um, as, as Idell often relates in, in the book, is, oh, so it's a thing, it's really a thing, because they were seeing with their own eyes things that before then they kind of just had vaguely experienced or had, or had experienced um, in ways that they articulated to their doctors and had been poo-pooed largely by their doctors. And so, so tell us a little bit more when you're doing these studies, Dan, you talked about you do, um, you do brain scans and you compare kind of the brain function of people who've had chemo versus people who have not had chemo. You know, what other kinds of tests and things do you do to kind of measure what people are experiencing and how the, the treatment is impacting them? So in the terms of, first of all, the, the brain imaging, we can do that in a couple of different ways. We can look at the effects of the brain as the person is just resting there and look at what we call resting metabolism and seeing how active different parts of the brain are and how, in people who have been exposed to chemotherapy, how that's changed um, compared to what it would be for a person in normal health or compared to people who hadn't undergone the chemotherapy exposure. And then we can also do imaging while people are actually performing cognitive tasks um, that, that is the psychological test at things that we know that they're having trouble with. For example, when people are having short-term memory problems, we can have them being scanned while they're actually having to remember something and see how the brain's uh, activation, its change in level of activity um, from before to after they're having to use it for that ability, um, is altered. Mm-hmm. And so we know for a fact that there is some alteration. We know, do we know for a fact that it's from the chemotherapy? We, we know that in people who have been exposed to chemotherapy and have had cancer, that their brains look different than the people who've been not exposed to chemotherapy and have had the cancer. And that's uh, um, what's often called a cross-sectional type of design, that is where you're looking at people in one point of time. And what is uh, also a kind of a more powerful way to look at that is what we call a longitudinal design, meaning that you're looking at the same person before and after um, they've undergone uh, some of their drug treatments or as the condition evolves, looking at changes in their brain over time. And that's that study that we were talking about a moment ago, um, sponsored by National Cancer Institute, um, has funded us to do. Instead of looking at a few dozen people at one point in time, looking at a few hundred people over a period of several years from the time they're first getting their chemotherapy to the time that um, there's a couple years out from their chemotherapy. And then we'll be able to answer more definitively what's changing in an individual as a result of having been exposed to the chemotherapy therapy and the time after that. And Idel, for you, did this, uh, did this come on while you were actually in active treatment? I mean, what was sort of the, you know, what was sort of the trajectory for you of this kind of chemo brain experience? When did it start? Was there a point when it was at its highest? When did it start to taper off? Tell yeah. us about that. Um, it started about midway through after my third treatment, mm-hmm. third round, and um, it did start to taper off, you know, a few, I don't know, maybe... 10 months out, and by a year out, I, I felt pretty much back to normal, um, although every now and again, I wonder if I still have some remnants of it in terms of trying to remember things or, you know, or just completely spacing out, but um, I would say I'm about 90% back to normal, and, and um, if that happened about just one year out. Um, and, and um, Dan, you mentioned that, or I think I don't mention that for some folks, that for, you know, a, a, a significant percentage of folks, it does start to lapse, and, and eventually they get back to a normal function. But talk to me a little bit about, you know, those folks who 
continue to experience this over a longer term, Dan? Do we know anything about, you know, certain types of chemotherapy that they're getting? Is it certain diagnoses? Is it, do we know anything about the biology of these people that, you know, are you kind of more, is somebody more inclined towards chemo brain than, than, you know, than somebody else, for example? Well, it's probably a combination of several things that you just touched on, but let me emphasize, first of all, in that in a study that we had looked at brain metabolism and, and published images of, that those were all people who were at least five or ten years out from their last dose of chemotherapy. So, so part of what is happening is uh, in people who are continuing to have problems are long-term changes in the actual metabolism of the brain mm. as you look at it region by region through the brain. And in terms of what kinds of chemotherapy, there's, there's some clues. It's there haven't been enough of the hundreds and hundreds of people studied that could be broken up into lots of different individual chemotherapy regimens to know everything we'd want to know. But we've been able to at least break up, for example, into two broad groups, people who get the kind of what we think of as standard chemotherapy or cytotoxic chemotherapy that causes the symptoms like your hair falling out and nausea and so forth, um, and people who get on top of that the hormonal therapies, the therapies that block estrogen um, from binding to its receptors or that prevent estrogen from being formed to begin with. And we were able to compare people who got the chemotherapy of the standard kind by itself versus the people who had the chemotherapy and the hormonal therapy in both in terms of their psychology and in terms of their biology um, as reflected by imaging. And so at UCLA and some other places, what's been found is that the people who have the combination of those therapies are the people who've had the biggest problems in terms of their ability to perform on neuropsychological tests. And also we saw that people who had the combination had decreases of metabolism in certain parts of the brain that weren't seen in people who had just the standard chemotherapy regimens. Now, Dan, how long have we, um, have we sort of acknowledged this, you know, in the cancer experience? I mean, how long have we acknowledged this is kind of a medical you know, issue in a medical, uh, you know, medical condition as a result or a side effect of the uh, chemo. I imagine maybe in the earlier days of treating cancer in this country, we just probably ignored this or didn't acknowledge it or just said, oh, you're just a little crazy in addition to having cancer, you know? Yeah, and in fact, the, the answer to your question depends on who you include in the we. So, you know, first of all, um, patients had often noticed this in themselves, but were often uh, had their their concerns trivialized by the people who they bring them up to. And I think part of probably what happened was just a technological thing, which is that the Internet made it so much easier for people across the country, across the world, to be able yeah. to kind of connect their experiences and, and develop more of at a grassroots level a realization that what they were going through was something that a lot of other people were going through in, an, in, in enough of a similar way that it was some kind of, you know, syndrome that you could put your hands around rather than just, you know, I have some symptoms and she has some symptoms and he yeah. has other symptoms. Yeah. And, and, and people who first started taking that seriously in the clinical world were the um, psychologists or neuropsychologists, and they had had, you know, experience with having patients come into their clinic who had um, had recently some um, cancer and chemotherapy and then some problems that were persisting even after the chemotherapy was over, and so they had some reason to, right. to believe that and started studying it kind of systematically by giving people batteries of neuropsychological tests where they could see uh, what things specifically were troubling, that is, were there memory issues, were there concentration issues, were there abstract reasoning issues, and, and yeah. so forth, and how those um, evolved over time and how they differed among people. And the, the, the group to come on board the latest on this, and still not certainly universally across um, the profession, are the oncologists themselves, mm. um, who oftentimes are still reluctant to 
mention as a, even a possible side effect when they're going through the informed consent process with their patients, the, the problems that it might cause in terms of their cognitive abilities, the problems with the brain, um, and who um, oftentimes are reluctant to, when a patient does come up to them with a problem, is to acknowledge that um, the extent to which the chemotherapy may have been involved in causing that problem, because there are all sorts of other things they might point to. They might say, well, you're just depressed. And when people are depressed, they have problems thinking, or you're anxious, and that can interfere with thinking. And someone can certainly be anxious and certainly can be depressed, and that can interfere, but we know that that's not the, the explanation for a lot of what people are experiencing. And one of the ways we know that is if you measure how depressed someone is and you measure how impaired they are by neuropsychological testing, there's almost no relationship between the two of them. And, mm. and in fact, what, what depression does correlate most with in this regard is how impaired someone perceives themselves to be. But that in itself is very different from how impaired they turn out to be as measured on neuropsychological tests. Wow, that's fascinating, Dan. That is fascinating. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. Today we're talking about uh, chemo brain, um, a, a pretty uh, important uh, uh, side effect of chemotherapy. Uh, where folks have uh, experience around memory loss, uh, can take a real toll. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355. Or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Do you want to be a better lover? Have better sex? Do you have a passion for food? Improve your relationship and your sex life with sex, love, and food. Your host, Dr. Lori Buckley, and co-host Mark Phelan will entertain, enlighten, and inform you. In each show, Dr. Lori will answer your questions and much more. It's all about sex, love, and food. Listen live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. 
I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo, and I'm here today with Dr. Dan Silverman and Idell Davidson. They're co-authors of Your Brain After Chemo, a practical guide to lifting the fog and getting back your focus. Uh, we've just learned about some of the things that can contribute to chemo brain, how we uh, are really learning so much more about this side effect over time. Um, and now I just want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what people can do uh, to cope uh, with chemo brain. Um, but before we, we get into the coping mechanisms, um, Dan, is, is chemo brain in any way preventable? Is there anything folks can do to prevent or, or, or minimize this impact? Uh, let me get to that, and just before that, let me actually finish off um, to before the break um, the answer to your question about the, uh, who's taking it seriously and yes. at what point. Yes. Because there are other common things that doctors, the oncologists might say to the patients that, again, have some veneer of truth to them but aren't really the explanation. For example, they may say, well, the chemotherapy drugs have caused you to have this precipitous menopause, and, and we know how bad menopause can be on people, um, and this is even worse because it came so fast. But again, we know that even though that can contribute, that's not the full explanation because people who've already gone through their menopause and are older and completely have already taken care of having had those transitions experienced, when they get the cancer and chemotherapy, can have some of these exact same symptoms of, of the post-chemo brain mm-hmm. as people who have never, uh, never had their menopause and have to go through that in addition. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so, oftentimes a misconception on the part of the medical oncologist. Well, it, it's a... It's a misconception in terms of trying to attribute solely the problems a person is going through. It can can exacerbate, just like depression can exacerbate, but it's not the explanation. Mm. Interesting. Can I I just, I'd love to add to that because this this is a topic that's very dear to my heart, and and, uh, um, I often get on my soapbox about it, and I don't really want to do that, but I, I just think it's really important to hear that what people are saying out there, what patients are saying out there and about not being heard. And, you know, you had asked why oncologists, even they fail to mention uh, the side effect. And one of the experts I interviewed for the book, um, she's an oncology nurse practitioner, kind of explained it best to me. And here's what she said. Um, Doctors either don't keep up with the scientific literature or they're more interested in cure rates than quality of life. And I remembered her saying that, and, and yeah. so in other words, many, certainly not all, but really many, see this as a non-medical issue, mm-hmm. and therefore not their concern. And of everything that motivated me to write this book with Dan, that statement, along with dozens, if not hundreds of stories I've collected from survivors who can no longer function as they once could and don't understand why their doctors didn't warn them that this could happen, that statement is what drove me personally to get the word out about this very real side effect of chemo. And I just want to say that, you know, I went back to look at the patient information sheets that I received when I first got my infusions of chemo. Um, and granted, this was five years ago. And perhaps these information sheets have changed. But they're listed under possible side effects mm-hmm. were the warnings the standard warnings, hair loss, nausea, and all those other things. But nowhere, nowhere did the words possible cognitive dysfunction appear. And, you know, that's... And this is, on, this is on the information sheets of, around the medication, I guess? Yes, that you get and you sign off on them. And, mm-hmm. you know, it warns you the, the risks and the benefits and what to expect and yeah. the side effects and when to call your doctor and, you know, those kind of things. And... To not mention that, not to not mention something that's potentially the most 
long-lasting and debilitating side effect of all, I think, um, borders on lack of responsibility mm-hmm. to the patient because mm-hmm. all of us are entitled to full disclosure as to the risks and benefits of medication and, you know, allow us to make our decisions about what we want to do with treatment. It, it's our decision. And I guess I really am on my soapbox, but I just, <laughs> it's so important to me. And hey, I wanted is, to this add, is your soapbox, I yeah, I wanted to add one thing. When I was interviewing this, this one woman, Carol, she was telling me, uh, for the book, she was telling me that she happened to be listening to the radio, and Dan was on the radio. He was the featured speaker. And he was talking about the side effects of chemotherapy. And she was listening with her husband. And she told me she started sobbing, just sobbing. And it was the first time she had ever heard an explanation of what was happening to her. And she turned to her husband and she said, you know, I'm not crazy. Mm. Yeah. And that's what many people think. They think they're going out of their minds because nobody tells them that this is something that they might expect. And Dan, is this a side effect that is this a side effect that the drug companies are studying or that the Food and Drug Administration is asking or requiring that companies study or, or measure when they're doing drug development? There's been uh, very little effort from the drug companies at this point to say this. Most of the funding for this has come from government funding agencies or private foundation funding agencies. Yeah. Um, and it's, that's understandable. It's not necessarily to the best interest of the drug companies to um, get uh, more of the word out on this at this point, at least until they you know, need to confront it because of um, yeah. the other kinds of evidence that are coming out. But they're required to report on all these other events that are happening to people. They're required to report when the drug causes nausea and vomiting and the diarrhea and all the other things that these drugs cause. The other things that they are required to measure, but they haven't up till now, this hasn't been a requirement to measure, you know, neuropsychological function um, before and after taking the drug. And in, in addition, what most of the things that get measured um, in preparing things for the FDA, for example, are on a relatively short time frame. And, and nobody's right. surprised to see people undergoing um, problems with their concentrating and so forth in that short time frame when they're dealing with the new diagnosis and, and, mm-hmm. or, or advancement in their cancer stage and dealing with all the physical side effects that the uh, chemotherapy and other treatments are causing. It's really where it becomes more of an issue are people who've gone through that, that part's over, and they're still having very persistent cognitive problems. And that's within a time frame that often doesn't even get, you know, really within the window of what's being most analyzed and until but, after a drug's already but approved. But we were talking about earlier, Dan, do we know for a fact that it is the chemotherapy that's causing this? We know it to as strong, that the chemotherapy is at least part of the cause of, of these symptoms, mm-hmm. as strong a way as we could without being able to do what you ultimately, you know, would would do in terms of randomizing a study where half the people, you know, are just getting a chemotherapy assigned to them, even right, though, right. Um, who, who for no other reason than for this type of study. But we know um, not only from looking at the cross-sectional studies, where you look at people who have been exposed to chemotherapy versus people who haven't, and yeah. looking at longitudinal studies, um, which not... Uh, entirely um, consistent, but the preponderance of them showing that people are undergoing changes that occur um, along the way. Individually, they themselves become worse in various ways, or a substantial subset of people do. And then we know from putting so, together... Well, so, Dan, just for our listeners, a longitudinal study is when you're studying somebody over time. Over the, the same group of people studying at multiple points in time. That's right. right. Great. Um, and then we know from uh, animal studies that, in fact, you can give 
nothing but the chemotherapy agent. You don't even need the cancer, but uh, just the chemotherapy agent themselves, and then see changes in the animal's brains and see changes in the animal's ability to do things like run mazes, for example, to, you know, that, mm. that their cognitive ability declines. And you can even show it in just in, in, uh, in a test tube that if you use a Petri dish and look at brain tissue slices and incubate them with the chemotherapy agents, that you can see uh, much uh, the changes that are much more profound in the brain tissue than anybody had previously realized for chemotherapy agents that weren't classically considered to be neurotoxic. So, Dan, let me go back to an earlier question. Let's um, uh, let's just go quickly for a moment into um, is this is this, is this preventable? Are there ways to minimize this? Do we have any studies about doing certain things, taking certain vitamins, or anything that you can do to prevent or reduce the impact of this? Yeah. So even less than uh, um, having had the the phenomenology studied in large-scale studies has been any kind of large-scale study to look at prevention. Um, we're, we're just not there yet to be able to have hard data to say, yes, if you do this, you won't get chemo brain. Right. Um, and so, um, the, the, I mean, to, to don't, not to trivialize this, but really the two strongest things about preventing um, having effects after chemotherapy for cancer are to prevent uh, having the cancer, and then uh, if the chemotherapy um, is put in juxtaposition to uh, to other possible options of treatment, to think about those options in terms of what their relative benefits and risks are. So, the, the preventing the cancer itself is you know a huge area of improvement that is available because we have things to do to prevent cancers that just aren't being done nearly as often as they can. You know, we know that if people get a colonoscopy every five to ten years that will have reduced a lot of the changes in the intestines from turning into cancer, and there's so many people who aren't availing themselves of that, for example. And similar things with mammography or with um, having uh, regular uh, checks for of the cervix to prevent cervical cancer or breast cancer. Um, but once that's, uh, that that that's happened, right. and then the question is, uh, where do you go from there? So we, in the book, um, Your Brain After Chemo, we devote um, a substantial section at the beginning to how just to talk to your oncologist about what the potential options are um, with chemotherapy, without chemotherapy, or if it is going to be chemotherapy, which kinds of chemotherapy, and what's known at that point about how much one chemotherapy agent versus another may be associated with having changes. And that's such a quickly evolving area that right. we didn't want to make really hard recommendations there because right. the chemotherapy regimens are changing. But, you know, just looking from what has been accumulated in the knowledge base in the past, for example, we see that drugs like methotrexate and fluorouracil may have been particularly hard on people. But now the, the state of the art is advancing that those are less commonly used in treating patients with breast cancer. Um, and, and quickly, we're, um, we're going to go to break in a minute, but just quickly, do you, uh, is there any impact um, of the targeted therapies on, brain, on, on cognitive function? Or is it just really the traditional kind of cytotoxic chemo drugs? Well, the targeted therapies are mostly at this point are the Herceptin and the anti-hormonal therapies. And the anti-hormonal therapies by themselves, the answer is probably yes. The Herceptin by itself, I don't know the answer to that point. Okay, okay. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. Today we're talking about chemo brain um, and, and uh, one really important side effect of chemotherapy. Um, which is uh, often not recognized, not talked about, not adequately managed. Uh, chemo brain folks experience memory lapses, difficulty concentrating, difficulty remembering things. Um, we're, we're really getting to the heart of this issue today. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We will be right back.
Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355. Or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday, 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We've been having a great discussion about chemo brain, uh, really the cognitive impact of chemotherapy. Uh, we're talking today with Dr. Dan Silverman and Idell Davidson. They are co-authors of a book called Your Brain After Chemo, a practical guide to lifting the fog and getting back your focus. Um, Idell, I want to talk about uh, just uh, quickly some of the things that you did to really cope uh, with this side effect. How did you kind of organize your life? How did you kind of manage and push through it? And uh, also, I know you've gone to some different programs at the wellness community. Is this a common kind of topic of conversation when you are with other people um, who've been through a cancer experience? Is this uh, something that, that folks with cancer talk about, uh, you know, with each other? Oh, they talk about it all the time. And, and sometimes it's kind of with a wink and a giggle, you know, because it's they see it as a, a, just a silly inconvenience. And sometimes it's hugely debilitating in terms of affecting their life, in terms of um, being able to run a household or being able to um, continue to work on the job. And, um, yes, I mean, we talk about it all the time. I mean, you talked about it in, in, it, the impact on you as a, as a journalist, which is obviously a job where there's quite a bit of memory really kind of pu- pulling a lot of your right. experience, knowledge, names, facts together to do your work, and, and it had a real serious impact um, on your work at that time. It really did, and, um, you know, I, I, I managed to get through it. And, it, you know, I also wanted to say that... Um, a lot of times people feel compelled to tell other people that, that they're experiencing these cognitive problems. But, you know, unless other people are noticing it, I really don't think you need to discuss it, um, you know, unless it's, as I said, unless it's really impacting your life. Um, but in the wellness community, at, in um, our support groups, I mean, that is something that we talked about all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, as we as we move sort of towards the end of our show, Idell, you having been through this, and of course having done all this research and written this amazing book of, uh, about chemo brain, what what advice? would you give to someone who's been diagnosed with cancer? Or we've got a lot of folks listening today. I'm sure a lot of folks who've never even heard of this yeah. phrase, chemo brain, heard of this side effect. Um, we're saying that it's not being adequately recognized by the doctors, by the oncologists, by the medical profession. What advice would you give to somebody about how they can kind of become aware of this, look out for it, and really manage through yeah. it? You know, if I had to say one thing, it would be... Um, Prior to even starting chemotherapy, see if you can get a referral to a neuropsychologist um, to get a baseline evaluation of your cognitive function. And then over time... All right, that was a mouthful right there, I did. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) In English. Oh, okay. Um, I guess I've been working with Dan, too. (laughs) Um, Blame it on me. Yeah. You know, before you start... So there's a doctor, you said, a, 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 a doctor or a clinician called oh, a, a neuropsychologist. called a neuropsychologist, a psychologist who specializes in looking how your, at how your brain works cognitively, um, how you think. And, um, and before you even start your treatment, you're saying you should meet with this person. Right. Before you even start, you, you go and you get a, a baseline and, and you go through a battery of tests and, you know, that's what they do. They give you a battery of tests and they, they look at um, how your brain works. They, they look at your memory. Um, they look at your ability to concentrate and they have all these kinds of tests and you get um, different scores and um, then as you go through treatment, you know, you keep going back to them and so that they redo these tests and they're able to monitor you mm-hmm. over time mm-hmm. so that you can see if starting, you know, this difference, if before treatment your mind was working one way, but now three months out you're starting to forget things and they can see a trend over time, then you know that there's something that you need, you need to have this conversation with your oncologist and see, you know, possibly you should be switching treatments yeah. or is there something else that you should be doing? I want to, well, another quick question, Idell, is again, as we move towards the end of the show, but um, that just kind of came to mind. Um, I know there are a lot of different kind of herbs and supplements and things out there that are supposed to help and boost memory loss. Um, do you think folks are kind of driven to, t- to, to taking some of those kinds of things? It's important that folks talk to their doctor oncologist if they want to take some of those kind of memory boosting or enhancing kind of herbs and supplements? Yeah. You know, I, I personally don't really know of anything that is directly related to, you know, boosting yeah. your memory. Yeah. I, I, hear, I You know, you hear about things, you hear things, you know, infomercials and things on TV and yeah. you see things in the stores. And I just, you know, we've always, we always like to tell folks that if you're thinking about doing anything in addition to mm-hmm. your treatment, you really right. should talk to your doctor, talk to your oncologist, because we know that, you know, certain things are, are you know, the technical term is kind of counterindicated, but that, you know, there are certain drugs that, that certain supplements and things yeah. that you can take that can actually can impact the effect of your chemotherapy. Right. And, and, you know, perhaps after you're done with chemotherapy would be the time to, you know, if you want to start doing something. But, again, I'm not a doctor, and I, 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 I'm not qualified to advise. Yeah, but yeah, I just think we should let folks know if you're thinking about any of that, you really need to talk that through, uh, you know, talk that through with your doctor to make sure you're not uh, having any kind of counter effect to the impact of your treatment. Right. Um, Dan, quickly, um, advice? For, for, for somebody who's been diagnosed and, again, maybe they've never even heard of chemo brain or they're starting to hear about it or think about it or starting to have some of these focus and memory loss issues, what, what advice would you give to these folks listening today? 
Well, to start with the um, last issue you raised about things that you could be taking kind of over the counter, um, the, as you point out, there are so many different possible side effects of those and, and interactions with other things that you're taking for your cancer that um, you would want to be careful about that. But one of the things that has um, gotten a lot of attention in other arenas that also um, we promote here is uh, making sure that you have at least enough of the right kinds of um, nutrients and uh, the right kinds, including fatty acids. So if you're not getting enough, for example, fish in your diet, then to take something that's got enough omega-3 fatty acids in it. If you're not getting enough protein in just the general foods that you eat, to make sure you take some foods that are very rich in protein because that provides the amino acids that are really important for a lot of things, not only building up your own proteins in your body, but building up the neurotransmitters in your brain that are, that are important for being able to function in, a, in terms of your thinking in a normal way. Uh, and um, and we have specific recommendations in terms of nutrients and in terms of what foods to go for to get the right combination of nutrients that are really oriented towards maximizing your brain function um, as, as well for that type of thing. And in terms of um, other kind of lifestyle types of maneuvers that people can make, mm-hmm. um, exercise is extremely important. Not only exercising the brain, but exercising the body has direct effects on brain function in a number of different ways. But one of the things that we realize is that when you get uh, aerobic exercise, and it doesn't have to be a huge amount, but let's say um, at least 20 to 30 minutes, at least three to four times a week, that you release factors in your brain that help um, brain cells to grow. And in parts of the brain that are particularly involved in memory, they're particularly important for allowing those brain cells to regenerate and, and to grow. And some of the studies that have been done with imaging um, in humans and also in animal studies have shown that those parts of the brain are actually particularly shrunken in people who have been exposed to chemotherapy or animals that get the chemotherapy. Uh, and in addition, there's uh, things that happen within our bodies, for example, release of hormones and other factors that themselves can be helpful in terms of either mitigating the adverse effects that, that is decreasing it, um, some of the side effects or in themselves promoting healthier um, brain function as well as a result of exercise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just o- overall, then, in terms of brain health, People should be making sure that they're getting good and regular exercise, uh, that they have a well-balanced diet, uh, making sure they get enough, as you said, you know, omega-3, either through the fish or, or food that they're eating or uh, through taking supplements that, um, uh, you know, in general we want people to have um, a healthy lifestyle and make some healthy choices and that that contributes, if I'm hearing you right, that that contributes to um, overall brain health and may be helpful for folks as they kind of manage through these chemo issues? Uh, that's exactly right. And then some of the things we talked about before, like, so for example, depression that we said is not the cause but can exacerbate. Well, certainly anything you can reduce exacerbators um, it will be u- useful too. So if there is a sign that you may have, on top of everything else, may have some depression, by all means, you know, talk to your doctor, um, maybe not, you know, maybe your oncologist, but, but your family doctor or if you have someone else you've talked about before um, so that you can get adequate management of the depression and that will make everything else better as well. Yeah, yeah. Great. Fantastic. Well, you guys have been so wonderful today, and I want to thank both of you for uh, for being with us to help us um, educate folks on this important topic, inform our listeners. Um, I think that, uh, you know, a few, few of the takeaways that I certainly heard, heard on the show today is that, uh, you know, this is a very real side effect uh, of chemotherapy and something that 
folks with cancer are experiencing and um, that, it is, that it is something you do need to bring up with your doctor. You need to understand, you need to be aware of, and you need to, uh, you know, f- find support and find ways to manage through um, this very real and uh, can, can be very debilitating um, uh, and frustrating side effect. Uh, you know, of, uh, of chemotherapy treatment so that we certainly want folks to know that this exists, this is real. Uh, we're hearing today that, um, that uh, for many, many folks with cancer, this is a temporary situation um, and that you will see it uh, fade over time after your uh, treatment is completed. Um, if you would like to learn more about Idell Davidson and Dr. Dan Silverman, uh, order a copy of their book. Again, the title of the book is your brain after chemo, a practical guide to lifting the fog and getting back your focus. Uh, you can visit their website at www.yourbrainafterchemo.com uh, for more information about the cancer support community, the med- many uh, educational and support services we provide. Call us at 888-793-9355 or go to www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Again, we, uh, the wellness community has merged with Gilda's Club to form the cancer support community. We've got centers all over the country uh, to provide free support, uh, education, uh, nutrition, exercise programs. Um, Visit our website at cancersupportcommunity.org. We also have a very active and vibrant online community. You can follow our show, Frankly Speaking About Cancer, on Twitter. Get the latest in cancer in the news. You can also provide us with feedback and let us know what show topics you'd like for us to cover in future episodes of Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Um, We want to dedicate today's show to all the cancer patients and folks who are experiencing uh, uh, chemo brain, again, a very real uh, side effect of cancer, cancer treatment. Um, We want to thank folks for being with us today listening. Again, I want to thank Idell Davidson and Dr. Dan Silverman for uh, their wonderful uh, contributions on the show today and educating us uh, on this topic. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <music>